So anyway, all right, uh, we're going to continue on in our um, uh, Story of David series. We've been in the last couple of weeks, and uh, we, we the first two weeks we kind of focused on the events or some of the events of, of 1 Samuel, and then uh, this week we're moving into the book that we call 2 Samuel. Uh, last week we watched a, a, a video from uh, the guys at the Bible Project that gave us a good overview of what 1 Samuel was all about. And, and so I wanted to show this week uh, an overview of what 2 Samuel is about as we, as we head into that. Uh, and so a lot of you guys really uh, mentioned that you enjoyed these videos, and I know some of you have actually looked at them and, and tried to uh, uh, incorporate them into your Bible study. So it's the Bible Project. You can go to thebibleproject.com or just look up Bible Project on YouTube, and you can find these videos uh, that are super helpful as you're you know, diving into a different book of the Bible to kind of let you know what they're all about. So as we head into 2 Samuel, let's take a look at, and, uh, and see what I have to say. All right. The book of 2 Samuel. Check out the video on 1 Samuel where we were introduced to the book's three main characters, Samuel, Saul, and David. And then also to the book's literary design, which first introduced Samuel and then traced the rise and fall of King Saul in contrast to the rise of King David. 2 Samuel tells the story of David as Israel's king, and in two movements, there's a season of success and a blessing, followed by a huge moral failure and then its sad consequences. And then the book ends with this well-crafted conclusion that reflects back on the good and the bad in David's life, generating hope for a future king to come from his line. So 2 Samuel picks up after Saul's death, and David surprises everyone by composing this long poem where he laments the death of the very man who tried to murder him. And so once again, the author, he's presenting David's humility and compassion. He's a man who grieves the death even of his own enemies. After this, David experiences a season of success and God's blessing. All of the Israelite tribes, they come to David, and then they ask him to unify all the tribes as their king. And so the first thing David does as king is to go to the city of Jerusalem. He conquers it, and he establishes it as Israel's capital city, which he renames as Zion. And from there, David goes on and he wins many battles and expands Israel's territory. Now, after making Jerusalem the political capital of Israel, he wants to make it their religious capital as well. And so he has the Ark of the Covenant moved into the city. And then in 2 Samuel 7, he tells God, now that Israel has a permanent home, he thinks that God's presence should also get a permanent house. So he asks if he can build a temple for the God of Israel. But God says to David, thank you for that thought, but actually I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. Now, 2 Samuel 7, this is a key chapter for understanding the storyline of the whole Bible. Because God here makes a promise to David that from his royal line will come a future king who's going to build God's temple here on earth and set up an eternal kingdom. And it's this messianic promise to David that gets picked up and developed more in the book of Psalms and also in the books of the prophets. And it's this king that gets connected to God's promise to Abraham. The future messianic kingdom will be how God brings his blessing to all of the nations. And it's right here in the midst of all this divine blessing that things go horribly wrong. David makes a fatal mistake, not fatal for him, but for a man named Uriah, one of David's prized soldiers. So from his rooftop, David sees Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, bathing. David finds her, he sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, and then he tries to cover the whole thing up by having Uriah assassinated and then marrying her. It's just horrible. So when David's confronted by the prophet Nathan about all of this, he immediately owns up to what he's done. He's broken, he repents, he asks God to forgive him, and God does forgive him, but God doesn't erase the consequences of David's decisions. And so as a result of this horrible choice, David's family, his kingdom, it all falls apart. And it makes this section a tragic story, much like Saul's downfall. So David's sons end up repeating his own mistakes, but in even more tragic ways. So Amnon sexually abuses his sister Tamar, and then their brother Absalom finds out about all of this and has Amnon assassinated. And then Absalom goes and he hatches the secret plan to oust his father David from power, and he launches this full-scale rebellion. And so for a second time, David is forced to flee from his own home and go hide in the wilderness, except this time he is not an innocent man. The rebellion ends when David's son is murdered, and it breaks David's heart. And so once again, he laments 
over the very man who tried to kill him. David's last days find him back on his throne, but as a broken man, he's wounded by the sad consequences of his sin. The book concludes with a well-crafted epilogue, with stories that are out of chronological order, but they have this really cool symmetrical literary design. So the outer pair of stories come from earlier in David's reign, and they compare the failures of Saul and then of David, and how each of them hurt other people through their bad decisions. The next inner pair of stories are about David and his band of mighty men who went about fighting the Philistines. And what's interesting is that both sections have a story of David's weakness in battle. So in contrast to the victorious David of chapters 1 through 9, here we see a vulnerable David who's dependent on others for help. The center of the epilogue has two poems that act like memoirs, and David reflects back on his life. And he remembers times when God graciously rescued him from danger. And he sees these as moments where God was faithful to his covenant promise to him and to his family. Both poems conclude by looking back onto the hope of God's promise of a future king who will build that eternal kingdom. Now these poems and then God's promise also connect back to Hannah's poem that opened the book. And so these key passages from the beginning, now the middle, and the end of the book bring the book's themes all together. Despite Saul and David's evil, God remained at work, moving forward his redemptive purposes. And God opposed David and Saul's arrogance, but he exalted David when he humbled himself. And so the future hope of this book reaches far beyond David himself. It looks to the future, to the messianic king who will one day bring God's kingdom and blessing to all of the nations. And that's what the book of Samuel is all about. So great, great stuff, and hopefully that kind of gives us you a, a context for where we're going and what the overarching story is we're talking about. And what the part of David's life that I want to focus on this morning is is how flawed he was. How, um, uh, you know, like like I said before, while David is described as a, a great king, the greatest king that Israel had ever known, he's also described as a man after God's own heart. He also sins with a capital S at times, and he is not a perfect man. By any means, as the video just talked about, there are times in, in, in David's life where his egregious sins really have serious impact on his future joy and his future, you know, his plans for his future and the future of his family. And, uh, and so I want to focus in on that. And, and as I was preparing this message, uh, I, I thought it was going to be one message and it ended up kind of turning into a, a, an unexpected message. And part of that was... Um, um, I was studying the Bible with Brian Teeson this week, and uh, he brought out an aspect of David's story that I had never seen that way and never really thought about before. And as I added that into what I started thinking about and talking about, um, I realized there was this theme in David's sins and David's uh, weaknesses that, that, uh, that there was a connection there that I wanted to talk about. And so, uh, so that's what we're going to do. So we're going to start this morning in Second uh, Samuel chapter 6. <clears throat> Second Samuel chapter six. Now, this is uh, as as the video pointed out. It's in, it's the section where David uh, wants to make Jerusalem the religious capital of Israel, and he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Now, he hasn't built a temple yet. Um, uh, that's going to be his son Solomon who ends up building the temple. So they are tabernacling this thing. They have a tabernacle tent thing that uh, that serves as their place of worship. And the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, it's the same Ark of the Covenant that Indiana Jones looked for. And it's um, it, it, the Ark of the Covenant is uh, is um, basically significant to Israel because it represents the very presence of God. To them, it is the very presence of God. It's not God. It's not something to be worshipped. But where the Ark goes, the presence of God historically goes with it, and and so it's very very significant. So for David to bring that into Jerusalem, it's a very significant thing, um, and so. When they bring the Ark of the Covenant, march it into Jerusalem. It is a full-on party parade. They are marching it down the streets to get it set up in the tabernacle. And uh, David is coming behind the entourage, and he is dancing and going crazy. The people are lining the streets and celebrating the entrance of the Ark into Jerusalem. And, uh, and David is just losing his mind. I mean, he's just, he is so happy. He's so praising God uh, that he's, he's just dancing. He has his kingly robes on. He decides, you know, I'm dancing too hard for these robes. He takes off his robes, probably gets down to basically like a loincloth type situation. And he is just seriously 
you know, just dancing and giving it up, right? Really, really praising God. So David had, has, has a wife at this point whose name is uh, either Michael or Michal. Uh, I'm going to go with Michal. Uh, and, and so uh, Michal uh, was actually King Saul's daughter. King Saul, David's former, the former king, David's former, uh, you know, enemy, uh, who is now dead at this point in the story, uh, King Saul's daughter. And, and King Saul gave uh, his daughter's hand in marriage to, king, to, to David, who wasn't king at the point, uh, because he, it was a, kind of a, a trophy-type situation. David killed a thousand Philistines, and as a reward for that, he got uh, Michal's hand in marriage. Um, and so the Bible actually tells us when they're, when, as, as David and Michal are, are first married, they have genuine, very real love for each other. It's a very romantic, you know, very loving relationship. And, um, and to the point that she actually helps protect David from her father at one point. And, um, so th- that's the kind of relationship they have. However, King Saul gets angry at David as, you know, as they're, you know, in their battle against each other and actually takes his daughter back and marries her off to another man. Um, and, and in that, uh, once King Saul is dead uh, and David becomes king, he gets his wife back. All right. So that's kind of where we are. So the, the ark has come into the city. David is celebrating like crazy and just, you know, totally going nuts with this whole, uh, ark, uh, entrance celebration. And, uh, Michal, uh, the queen now, is in the palace looking down on all the festivities, and she sees her husband stripped down to his, his uh, underoos and, and, and dancing like crazy. And first of all, we're, we're left with the impression that, well, she's not very happy about this because, it's, I mean, he, David is kind of debasing himself. He's not, this is, this is not kingly behavior, right? This is not royal behavior. And she's embarrassed by that. She's also embarrassed by the fact and worried possibly by the fact that uh, David is doing all this crazy unrobed dancing in front of all the women on the streets, all the common people on the streets and, and, and the women in particular, and it bothers her. So this is where we kind of pick up the, the passage I want to read right now. So Second Samuel chapter 6, start with verse 20. It says, And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So I don't know if you picked up on the, on the tood there, but she's not happy, right? She's, she's, she's pretty uh, disgusted with David at this point. So David retorts back, and, and uh, in verse 21 we have, it says, And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord, and here's a little zinger David gives her. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate uh, before the Lord. And he says, I'll make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. And so there's a song that we sing around here occasionally uh, called Undignified. It's an old David Crowder song where it says, I'll become even more undignified than this. Some may say it's foolishness, you know, and this is where that, that song comes from. Uh, David's saying, I'll become, you know, if, if you think I un, look undignified right now, when it comes to praising the Lord, I don't, I don't care what I look like. I'll, I'll do what it takes to praise him the way I feel led to praise him. So up until this point in the story, and this is the point we usually recognize and celebrate David's attitude about worship and praise. Up until this point, everything's kind of uh, okay, sort of okay. There's a little conflict going on here, but everything's pretty much okay with David. But then look at this next statement that he says. And, uh, and this is the one that Brian really pointed out to me, and I, I'm so thankful that he did. He says, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. So, so get this picture. David's wife is embarrassed and, and, and maybe unnecessarily so embarrassed in terms of the way David is praising or whatever, but she's bothered by the fact that other women are looking at her husband. And David's response to that is, um, you know, I'll praise God however I feel led to praise God. And guess what? If you won't honor me, I bet those other women will. I bet those other women will. Now, by a show of hands wives in the room, um, who would be okay with that response from your husband? Yeah, nobody, right? Nobody. Like, like that's, that's some jacked up stuff right there. Like, that's not, that's not okay. And, and here's, here's the thing, like, 
what David could have and, and, and probably should have done was to go, you know what, when it comes to the way I praise God, I'll praise him however I feel led to praise him. And then he should have maybe followed up with this. But as far as those women down in the street, babe, you got nothing to worry about. Now, if he had done that, it's a whole different story, right? It's a whole different picture. But instead, he kind of, he feeds into her doubts and her fears. He really, really disrespects her. And so right here at the beginning of 2 Samuel, we see a kind of disturbing pattern in David's behavior begin to emerge. And the first thing is this, that David disrespects his bride. He really disrespects his bride. He goes on after this to marry multiple women. Like He had lots of wives, a good number of wives. And um, he just really disrespects his bride. Now, guys, um, I want to encourage you this morning to take seriously our role of really lifting up these brides that God's, God has given us. If you're, if you're uh, married or even if you have a, a girlfriend, to really lift up these women, that, it shouldn't, that we need to make them feel um, honored and loved, cared for, respected, um, give them the dignity that they are due. Now, if you're like me, there are some days you do a pretty good job at this, and there are some days you fail miserably. And, um, and I'm sure all of us could use a little repentance in this area. But it needs to be our goal to really lift them up, really truly lift them up. I, um, right shortly after, I was telling somebody this earlier this week, shortly after we moved here, um, so it's been almost 10 years ago, um, I had kind of a light bulb aha moment. And, uh, and I just, I was thinking about my wife one day and I was thinking about, um, her, like when I first met Jamie, Jamie was, uh, you know, we were in college. She was this strong woman, still is a very strong woman, strong woman, determined. Uh, she had dreams and a vision and a plan for her life. She had goals. I mean, she was, that's one of the things that really drew me to her. I mean, Jamie knew where she was going. And when you got around Jamie, like, like it was like I married up and everybody knew I married up, right? Like, like, I mean, just, it was so obvious. Like, you know, everybody was like, well, I don't know how you did that, but good for you. Right. Like I totally married up. And so, so over the course of our marriage and, you know, just the way marriage works and through having kids and everything else, like I said, about, about 10 years ago, it, it dawned on me that, um, in some ways, Jamie wasn't that person anymore. And, um, and I realized that I didn't know what her dreams were anymore. I didn't, I didn't really know, like, what was driving her? What were her goals? What did she want to accomplish with her life? And I, I, like, her, her life had become about following me around in the ministry. And somehow we had lost track of Jamie and the strength that I had fell in love with there and everything. And so I remember sitting her down and going, I just asked her, what are you dreaming about? What is it? What is it that you want to do? What plans, what goals do you have? Because this is what I want. I want to help you fulfill those goals in your life. I want to help you realize whatever dreams that God is laying on your heart. Like our marriage shouldn't just be about me. And now, now, that's a typical man thing that it took me, you know, 12 years or so to realize that. But, but I, I realized it and I, and, and I had to really repent to Jamie and go, I hate that I have kind of taking you for granted and your own dreams and your own plans and your own goals for granted and, and just kind of not really giving that a thought. And so it, that began a, a lot of conversations. And so I say that and I tell that story just to say this, guys, lift your wives up, lift your girlfriends up, help them to become everything that God has called them to be. Help them to realize the dreams that he has given them. And vice versa, I, think that, I don't think this is just about, you know, men to women. Women, help your husbands become everything that God has called them to be and his design and, and his, you know, the dreams that he's given them. Like, help, let's lift each other up, right? I mean, that's a marriage I think that all of us would want to be a part of. And so let's lift each other up. And so David starts off this disturbing pattern of disrespecting his bride. Now, fast forward a couple of chapters to chapter 11. This is where we get the story of David and Bathsheba, where David commits adultery. 
And, um, and so just to give you a little uh, background, the Bible tells us that it, it was the time of year when kings go out to war. Evidently, there was a, a war season. And so uh, and it was the time of year when kings go out to war. They go out to battle. And all of the troops are out fighting wars and, and everything. But David decides, you know, I've, I've done this war thing long enough. I'm going to stay home. I'm just going to chill as king in the palace, let the generals take care of everything. I don't need to be out there with them. I'm just going to stay here. So David is not where he should be, not doing the work that he should be doing. He has idle hands. And, and then this is where we kind of pick up the story where David goes off to a high, you know, the, the, usually the palace would give the king a view of his whole empire. He's at a high place in the palace where he can look down on the roofs of all the other buildings around town. And he catches sight of uh, this woman named Bathsheba who is bathing. <coughs> now, uh, verse 2 of chapter 11. It says, it happened late one afternoon. when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, let me clear up some things here. Um, I've heard people spin this story in that, you know, possibly Bathsheba was a loose woman. What was she doing out bathing on the roof? This was actually a very common practice. It was a normal thing for people to head up onto the roof of their house. It was a place where you wouldn't be noticed, I guess, unless the king wasn't where he should, should be. And, and so she's, she's bathing on top of the house. She's not doing anything abnormal here. David, however, I would almost guarantee you, knew that he would probably catch sight of a bathing woman before he even went out onto the porch. Um, and so it's David here with idle hands. Now, also, I want to throw in this little detail, too. The Bible tells us that Uriah, this, her husband, he was not somebody that was unknown to David. The, the, the scripture lists the 30, what they call mighty men of David. Uriah the Hittite is one of those 30 mighty men. He, David not only knew him, knew, him, David not only knew him he, uh, he revered him and knew his wife. And so this was, this was uh, all the more uh, egregious of David to take the wife of somebody that he cared about and respected. Now, what happens is, just to fill in kind of the rest of the story, uh, once David realizes, okay, we're going to get caught in this because she's pregnant, he sends out to the, to the front lines to get Uriah and bring him home and, and says, hey, you've been doing a great job. I want to give you a little break. Go ahead. Go spend some time with Bathsheba. He's trying to get, you know, get them to you know, do their thing so it doesn't get blamed on him. And, and so Uriah is such an honorable man. He's like, he can't stand the idea that all of his, his guys are out in the field giving their lives while he's home enjoying time with his wife. So he won't even go in the house. He sleeps in the doorway. He, just, he won't even go in the house. So when that doesn't work, I, David's plan B is he composes a letter, seals it up, gives it to Uriah, says, take this to the general out on the battlefield. Uriah, ever the faithful servant, delivers the sealed letter to the general on the battlefield. The general opens it up and reads, put Uriah on the very front line. Send him out there by himself. And so Uriah is killed in battle, and David ultimately ends up adding to adultery the sin of murder. Uh, and so, uh, so now we can talk about the whole murder thing. I'm not going to go into that. What I want to focus in, focus on is, is the fact that these two things, and the other disturbing patterns here, that David... In addition to disrespecting his bride, David objectifies another woman, and then he commits adultery. He objectifies another woman. So David, here he is, idle hands, not, not where he should be doing, not doing the work that he should be, should be doing, and, uh, and goes out and, and just, just to gaze on some woman, to sit there and lust after this woman, uh, and ultimately carry that sin further and, and to, to a serious sexual sin. I, want to, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to, go, to say that what David did that night was the, is the equivalent of 1000 B.C. porn. David, idle hands, I'm going to go lust. I'm going to go look at something I know I shouldn't be looking at, somebody I shouldn't be looking at. 
it's the equivalent of what we would call porn today. I mean, it, it, it had the desire, the same effect. I, this issue of, I want to talk about this for a little bit. The issue of pornography is, um, it is a, uh, an epidemic. It is a worldwide epidemic. Um, when I was a kid, and if you're my age or older, you know, when you were younger too, uh, like we had to work to get our porn. Um, like it, it wasn't readily accessible. So you had to, you had to go find a magazine, know, know a friend whose dad had a stash, you know, I mean, whatever. I mean, it was, it was, it was a little harder to get access to pornography uh, when I was younger. Um, nowadays, um, it's in everybody's pockets. It's in everybody's pockets. And I've said this a, a dozen times before. I seriously can't imagine uh, growing up as a young man um, knowing that in my pocket, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I could access porn right there. All I had to do is just pull it out of my pocket and surf to it. I cannot, like, it would have, it would have overwhelmed me. It absolutely would have overwhelmed me. Um, and yet that's the world we live in today. That's the world our young people live in today. It's the world all of us adults live in today. Um, we have that kind of ready access to those kinds of images, to those kinds of videos. And we have to get real about what do we do about that? What do we do? When I say that this is a, an epidemic situation, this is not Pastor Jeff going off on some sort of religious rant about the evils of pornography. This is not a religious matter anymore. Like even uh, sociologists and, and uh, mental health experts, and, I mean, that aren't people of faith are calling this out as uh, destroying the fabric, the fabric of our society and the fabric of families all across our nation and all across our world. It is a real and dangerous situation that we have to get real about. Now, in different forms of media and in, you know, sometimes in conversations with young people, it is oftentimes just simply accepted and even celebrated at times. But I'm telling you, it is destroying us. It's destroying us. And I just think that we can do better. I think that we can do better. I want to show you um, some statistics. This is from a recent Barna uh, report, uh, Barna Research Group. And it, this is a, actually just this year it was released. Um, now, the blues are, are the, the guys and the reds are the women. Um, and so it divides it up into males and females, practicing and non-practicing Christians, and then ages 13 to 24 or ages 25 and over. And what we have here, you know, the highest numbers are uh, 72% of non-practicing Christians aged 13 to 24, 72% of them engage in porn on a regular basis. And regular being defined as at least a couple times a month. At least a couple times, 72% of, of, of uh, guys in that, males in that age group. The next level is males, non-practicing Christians, age 25 and up, 55, basically half, okay? Now, see, so here's, here's when we get into Christians. Males, practicing Christians, ages 13 to 24, 4 and 10, are looking at porn on a regular basis. It's lower, but it's still too high. 4 in 10 looking at porn, Christians, on a regular basis. And then you have... Uh, non-practicing females, basically a third uh, of, of that age, 13 to 24. Males, practicing Christians over the age of 25, 23%. 23%, roughly a quarter of all Christian males over 25 are looking at porn on a regular basis. And it's not just a, a, a men's problem. Uh, if you get back in those last two categories, 13% of practicing Christian females in the younger age group and 5% of practicing Christians in the older female Christians in the older age group. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is not just a man's problem anymore. It has transcended that. The availability of it in our lives is sweeping us and it is drowning us in this. And it is tearing apart our families. It's tearing apart, like I said, the, the very fabric of our nation. I really believe this. 
It's not just, as we learned about in the awareness conference last fall, it's not just simply about porn, that when you look in porn, you're also participating in sex trafficking industries, uh, that most of these pornographic videos are are women who are being uh, trafficked sexually. It is, and none of us want to be participating in that kind of stuff, but we'll look at porn on a pretty regular basis. That's got to change. It's got to stop. We can be better than this. We're called to be better than this. And this is what I know about, what I think I know about everybody in this room, because I assume you're just like me. Like, if we fall in this area, there's none of us in this room that want to be that person. We don't want to be that person. Like, I, I don't want to be a person who's tempted by that thing. I don't want to be a person who falls in that area. I don't want that for my life. I know God's calling me to better and calling me to more. I don't want to tear my family apart by those dumb decisions. I don't want to risk, uh, you know, bringing the wrath of God on my life and on my career and on my ministry and everything because of dumb decisions and temptations that I can't get under control. And in, in David's case, his inability to control his lust had disastrous results for his family. Disastrous. And while that video pointed out that God did forgive David, he also allowed him to experience the natural results of his decisions. And it really cost him his future joy. Like, I've got plans for my life, and I assume you do too. I've got plans for the direction I'd like to see my career go and my family go and and some personal dreams and things like that that I want to see accomplished. And I would hate that I would forfeit all of those dreams just because I couldn't get this issue under control in my life. Phil was talking earlier, and I so appreciated him kind of transparently sharing his struggles. And he said something that reminded me of a phrase I heard a, a pastor say once. He said, you know, God, when it comes to our sin, God always deals with us uh, privately. He always convicts us of our sin privately. But if we do not repent, he will aden- eventually deal with us publicly. And I don't want any of us to get to that point to where we have to be dealt with publicly because we can't get this under control. Yes, there's forgiveness. Yes, there's no condemnation. And we don't have to live under the weight of that. But if you keep going back to it over and over and over, there will be consequences that will impact your life. Learn David's lesson. The last story I want to share is the one that was also in the video where uh, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 13. And here we have the story of one of David's sons, Amnon, rapes his one of his daughters, a girl by the name of Tamar. And Tamar is um, um, also a, a full sister to another son of David by the name of Absalom. Um, and so it, you can read chapter 13 on your own. It, it, it doesn't pull any punches. I mean, this is a straight up rape. It's, I mean, it's not, it, there, there's no, it, the language is not iffy there. It is a straight up rape of a brother to a sister. And it's horrific. It's horrific. Now, Tamar, after she's been raped, she's then cast aside by Amnon, and she's shamed, and she's trying to process what just happened. She's trying to process what are her future, what, are, what her future looks like as a raped woman in a society like that. Uh, the shame she has to endure, and is there any prospect of her ever being married now? And the whole, the whole thing. And her brother Absalom sees her kind of in this state of grief and puts two and two together and kind of figures out what happened. And, and so this is where we pick up the story, Second Samuel 13, verse 20. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now, hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. Now, on first blush, it looks like Absalom is saying, um, you know, just sweep this under the rug because he's your brother. That's not what's going on here, though. What he's actually saying is, um, this is obviously distressing to you. I don't want you to think any more about this. I will take care of this, is what, basically what he's telling her. You don't worry about this. I'll make sure I, this gets taken care of. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon 
because he had violated his sister Tamar. And then the next paragraph starts off with this phrase, after two full years, Absalom, and then it goes on to tell us how Absalom then arranged, orchestrated a series of events to trap Amnon and murder him for what he had done to his sister. What I want want to dial in on is that after this happens, King David's daughter is raped. He's angry about it. And Absalom waits for two years for something to be done and nothing gets done. And so he takes matters into his own hands. David sat on that information for two years and we're led to believe would have sat on it even longer. So again, this disturbing pattern that he disrespects his bride, he objectifies another woman commits adultery, his multiple wives, we could throw that in there as well. And then he doesn't seek justice for his own raped daughter. And the, the sin pattern that I see, now there's other sins that are recounted in this story, issues of pride and of course the murder, and that sort of thing. But this pattern that I see really developing in David's life is his attitude towards women, the way he treats women. Um, it, it, it lacks something. It's not honoring to them, and it's certainly not honoring to God. And it becomes a real issue for him, so much so that it really results in him almost losing his kingdom, his family dynamic almost completely destroyed. He, he ends his days as a broken, broken man. He should have been able to go out on a high note as the greatest king Israel had ever had. Instead, he's just a shell of the person that he once was because he couldn't get these issues under control. And a lot of them have to do with his attitude towards women. Now, what I want to challenge us with this morning is this, that, you know, we live in another point in history where, you know, the battle of the sexes is front and center in the news just about every single night. And um, there's a lot of commentary about that, you know, on the 24-hour news networks. And, and what I want to challenge us to do is, as Christians, as followers of Christ, is to rise above that and be better than that. Like, we can rise above it. Like, I want us to be people, men in the room. I want us to be men who, who don't keep women down, who don't, uh, ignore injustice, who don't objectify women, but rather people who see women for what they are, are sisters in Christ, daughters of the Most High King, and lift them up and help them to become everything that God has called them to be. And likewise, women, I, I want you to be uh, um, those types of daughters of the King who also don't objectify men and don't um, um, you know, have some sort of whatever against men, but rather you help lift them up and become everything that God has called them to be. We can be so much more than what we are right now. We can do so much better than what we're doing right now. I wanted to kind of read just before we close, read a couple of verses from the New Testament. Jesus speaks to this issue of lust in Matthew chapter 5. He says this, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And as Jesus is like classic Jesus, I mean, he's, he, he's always, he's, he's, he's less concerned with the action than he is concerned about the heart. And so Jesus gets to that. So, okay. He's like, okay, guys, maybe you haven't actually had sexual intercourse with another woman, but if you've been ogling, you know, women for, uh, you know, your whole life and objectifying them and, uh, lusting after them, is it really any different? You've committed adultery in your hearts. And that's really what I care about. I need, I want to transform your heart situation. And I, I got to stand before you this morning and go, I want that for me. I need Jesus to transform my heart. And you do too. Every single one of us in this room, you have some sin issue in your life where you know you are weak in that area of temptation. And you need, you need Jesus to do a heart transplant on you and give you a heart that resembles his heart. You need him to change your heart about that particular thing. I need that in my life. I need my heart changed. 
Paul, later on in the book of Galatians, uh, in chapter 3, he says this. He's talking about um, uh, God's view now of, of humanity and humanity's relationship to God. And, and he says this, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. He says, you guys look at each other as, you know, the privileged male class and the, the kind of uh, trampled upon female class. He's like, in God's economy of things, there is no male or female. We stand on equal footing at the foot of the cross. That we can be and are called to be more. That the vision of, like Paul's vision here of the church, is a church that looks beyond social status, that looks beyond sex status, that looks beyond everything and instead just simply embraces each other as equals. I am a son of God. You are a daughter of God. We are all on equal standing with God. I don't have anything as a pastor. I don't have anything over you spiritually that you don't have over me. We are equals. We are all members of the same body and equal members at that. And this is what God calls us to be. So this is what I want to challenge you to do this morning. I want you to kind of look at your own attitude, your own heart about things, the way you view the opposite sex, the way you treat the opposite sex. And I'd like for you to decide on a different path for your life. A path where we lift each other up. A path where we don't denigrate one another, but rather we celebrate one another. I think we can be that, and I think that's what we're called to be. So I want to leave you like with this kind of last thought, that one, you're forgiven, so live free and honor one another. I could have just ended back there and gone, yeah, stop sinning, this is horrible or whatever, but I want to emphasize this fact that just because this is a sin issue that is not pleasing to God does not mean that we have to live under the weight of that sin. We exist as forgiven people. There is no condemnation for those that are in Jesus Christ. We don't stand condemned by this, but we do stand challenged to be more than what we are, and we can be more than what we are. So live in that forgiveness. Live free. Some of you right now are not living free. You're living still under the bondage and slavery of the sin that you keep going back to, and you've been set free from that, that God has actually placed you in a position of power over the things of this world, and you are submitting yourself as a slave to the things of this world when he has set you up over and above it. And it's time for you to live free, rise above those temptations. You don't have to live as a slave to your base desires. You don't have to live as a slave to your prejudices. You don't have to live as a slave to the way that you view the opposite sex. Instead, rise above that and seek to be a congregation that genuinely looks to lift one another up. What if the people around you, uh, that because that, I know, I, I know people well enough that there are a, a good handful of people sitting right now in this room that feel defeated, that feel uh, like they have no voice, like they have no control over their own lives, like they have no authority in this world. You feel like the whole world is just caving in on you. And what if your brothers and sisters in Christ in this room live for the purpose of helping to lift you up out of that? Like That's the kind of church we want to be. We need to be people who will learn from the lessons of David, learn from the mistakes of David. We don't have to be that. We don't have to repeat those same mistakes. And some of you are right now. You're repeating them. And I'm telling you, you're setting yourself up for disaster. These sins, even though we are forgiven of them, they have lasting consequences on our life. You look at the story of Moses. Moses uh, had a temper issue, uh, an anger issue. He could not get it under, under control. He was constantly losing his temper because he couldn't get his temper now, some of you may look, well, that's just how I am. I got this hot temper. I'm a hot red, you know, red-headed temper or whatever, you know. You, you, you think you can't get that under control, so, or you just accept it. Moses couldn't get his temper under control, and it cost him the biggest dream of his life. He did not get to enter the promised land that he led all those people to. It cost him the biggest dream of his life. And some of you right now have... Dreams for your life that involve family, that involve career, that involve whatever. 
and you're forfeiting those dreams because you can't get your basis desires under control. And God has set you free from that. You don't have to live under that. I want to challenge you to take the steps necessary to really and truly free yourself. Now, it doesn't happen by accident. It's not just a simple matter of you, you, you praying a little prayer today and going, okay, God, I don't want to do that anymore, and I'm going to do my best not to do that anymore, and, and amen, and everything's going to be magically different. It doesn't work that way. You have to take steps. You have to be strong enough and real enough and truthful enough with yourself to recognize what your weaknesses are. You like to pretend you don't have any weaknesses. Stop that. It's dumb. It's stupid. You're not fooling anybody. Recognize, call out what your weaknesses are and put things in place to protect you from those weaknesses. That is maturity. That is maturity. The world will tell you, well, if you limit yourself, that's kind of, that's, that's kid behavior. You need to be an adult and be free or whatever. That's dumb. Maturity is recognizing your weaknesses and going, I'm going to make sure I don't even go there. I don't even go there. So you put things in place and it looks different for all of us. For, I want to recommend a, a website to you. There's a group that came and spoke at the awareness conference called Fight the New Drug. And they're really on this kind of um, trying to transform the world in terms of uh, the influence of pornography and uh, as it's, especially as it's related to sexual trafficking. And, and, uh, and they have tools on that website that, you, that will, they will help you kind of um, um, give you tools to help you overcome your addictions in that area. I, I really want to recommend that to you. But in addition to that, just make solid steps. There's this great story. When I was a youth pastor, I always used to compare this story of David and Bathsheba to the story of Joseph and uh, Potiphar's wife in in the book of Genesis, where David is uh, idle and looking and lusting and continuing to look and look and look and think about him. Should I, shouldn't I, whatever. And then finally he sends for her, even after he's warned, isn't that somebody else's wife? No, go ahead and go get her. I mean, he just keeps, you know, pursuing that and just being idle. And then you have Joseph, and, you know, who's tempted by Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him into sleeping with her. She grabs hold of his, his jacket and is like, like, come here. You know, she's trying to seduce him. Joseph runs away so hard he actually leaves his clothes behind. He's just like, I just get out of here and run away, right? That's the difference. And, and, and you've got to ask yourself this morning, are you fleeing temptation or are you flirting with temptation? Because if you're flirting with temptation, the difference is Joseph's mind was made up before he ever got in that situation. Joseph knew what he would do before he ever got there. His, he knew what kind of man he wanted to be and what kind of man God wanted him to be. His mind was made up. David waited to make up his mind until it was too late. He just flirts with it and flirts with it and flirts. I'm telling you, if you're flirting with temptation, you will lose that battle. You will lose that battle. You're not strong enough. That's not, that's not me up here standing, standing here going, I'm strong enough, but you aren't. I'm, we're, we are not strong enough. Make up your mind what kind of man you're going to be. Wake, make up your mind what kind of woman you're going to be and design your life in such a way. There was a great... Um, New, there's some news that broke this week about our vice president, uh, Mike Pence. And I don't know if you saw it, but um, he uh, made a statement that uh, he has a policy that he doesn't, he doesn't do meetings alone with women. Now, this is the vice president of the United States. Um, and he was attacked like crazy. And I'm not, I'm not picking sides. I'm just reporting the story, okay? But he was attacked like crazy, like, uh, you know, just, you know, that was some sort of sexist decision or, you know, whatever. And some people were celebrating, but mostly he was attacked. Um, I got to say, that's, that's, that's what you call wisdom. That's what you call wisdom. Jamie and I have had that same policy in our marriage uh, ever since we got married. 22 years ago, we sat down and had a conversation about it. And we, we just said, you know what? We're not going to do lunch meetings with the opposite sex. We're just not going to do that. And if, and with one caveat, if we're in a work situation where it's absolutely unavoidable, it just has to take, take place, then we'll call each other. We'll invite the other to join us in that lunch meeting. And if, like say she calls me and says, hey, me and whoever are getting ready to have lunch, you want to join us, and I'm doing something and I can't join her, then at least I know she's honoring me and respecting me and being transparent in that situation, and, and it's all good. It's a little subtle communication that Jamie does to me and I do to her to say, I love you, I'm honoring you, I'm respecting you, I want you to know what's going on. I don't ever want you to have to doubt me for any reason at all. 
Now, some people would look at that and go, how immature. That's all right. I'll see you at your divorce. You set up these boundaries so that you can, so that those things that are important to you, so that the kind of man you want to be, the kind of woman you want to be, actually takes place, actually happens, actually happens. So do that. Set up some boundaries. Set up some things in your life to protect you from your biggest weaknesses. That's honoring to God. It is. We can do better. I want us to be better. I want myself to be better. Um, but it only happens intentionally. It doesn't happen accidentally. All right? Pray this prayer with me that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for the example, uh, even the example of what not to do from your servant, David. And um, God, I pray that we would learn those lessons, that we would be able to look at that life and go, I don't want my life to turn out similarly, and so I'm going to do something to make sure that doesn't happen. Father, forgive us when we fail you. Forgive us when we unnecessarily keep returning to the same sins that you have set us free from. God, we submit ourselves to you and we, we repent. We want to change. We don't want to be that person anymore. So help us be the person that you're calling us to be. Help us to make the hard decisions in our life that will set us up for success to be the people that you're calling us to be. God, if there's anybody in this room, I'm sure there are, that are feeling beat down and enslaved by the sins that they just can't seem to get past. They are really struggling with addictions and maybe even particularly addictions to pornography. God, I pray that you would just put a fire in their belly to want to do do differently, to want to live differently. Help them to get rid of the things that keep causing them to um, commit that same sin over and over that you've set them free from. Help us to live as a people who are free, who are resurrected. Um, We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.